Hey y'all, Matt Stroll is a friend of mine and has just published a really cool book called Why It's Okay to Love Bad Movies. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in buying it, which of course I recommend wholeheartedly. Anyways, he gave a talk with comments from another philosopher of whom I'm a big fan, Nick Riggle. They were kind enough to allow me to publish the talk here, as were the organizers of the talk at University of Montana. Thanks especially to Gillian Glace, director of the Humanities Institute at the University of Montana. I've cut out the Q&A, so you'll just be getting the talk from Matt and the comments from Nick. Also, Matt will reference some clips that didn't quite come through in the recording, so I, I just cut them out. Hopefully that doesn't detract too much from the talk. Um, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Matt Stroll. Thank you to Gillian and thank you for organizing this and to Ari for suggesting it and to the uh, Humanities Institute for hosting. Um, I'm really excited to do this today. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this kind of thing right now, as you might imagine, um, given that my book just came out in January. I'm doing a lot of uh, giving little talks or little interviews and summarizing it. And um, I don't want them to all be the same. And so I had the idea that it would be really fun to invite Nick to join us. And for anyone who's ever taken an aesthetics course with me, you've read Nick's work because I teach it every aesthetics course I teach. Um, but um, a thing that's exciting to me about, about getting to talk to Nick about this today is that um, I've taken a lot of inspiration from his work um, in the book. And um, I don't see what I've done in this book as standing alone in a vacuum, but rather um, I see it as a contribution to um, a, a big movement in aesthetics, in the field of philosophical aesthetics, where a, a large number of mid-career people doing really exciting work have been um, sort of overthrowing old ways of thinking about, about art and about um, aesthetic value and introducing um, new um, creative, new and interesting theories. And, and I think that um, you know, Nick is a, is a big part of that. And um, I'm excited today to try to relate what I'm doing to what I see him as doing. Um, so just a, a brief overview of the book and what it's about. Um, so I'm a movie person, right? Anybody who knows me knows that. My wife, Angela, is on Zoom as well. Um, she'll, she'll probably smile here as I say that, you know, during the, during the pandemic, so um, over the course of the years 2020 and 2021, over those two years, I watched 2,300 movies approximately. Um, and, and when you watch that many movies, they can't, they can't all be good, right? Like it's a sort of like when you take the hobby to that level, you take the interest to that level, you start to back yourself into a corner and you want run out of good ones pretty fast. Um, and so um, part of the way I've sort of stayed interested in film and the way that I've, I've it's continued to be such a big part of my life is that I've, I've tried to find sort of ways of engaging with a medium that are creative, that, where I'm not just following in the past laid out before me by others the way that they think about movies and, and write about movies and talk about movies, but also trying to innovate and develop my own idiosyncratic ways of thinking about it. And I find that's far more sort of interesting and engaging over the over the course of a, of a, of a long period of time than just sort of following um, normative uh, strategies of engagement. So I wrote the book in part as a kind of look into the way that I think about this thing that I really love. Like this is something that I put a huge amount of my life into and um, this is how I think about it, right? Um, namely, um, how I think about what it means to love and appreciate bad movies and, and, and what the value I get out of that is, what, that I, what I see that as adding to my life. Um, and so the, please, please mute yourself if you're here. I can see you's unmuted there. Um, so um, the starting point of the book is to ask the question, what does it mean to say that you love a movie because it's bad? Or what does it mean to say that a movie is so bad it's good? Right. Um, and there, there's a pretty obvious puzzle here because normally um, it doesn't work that way. Right. In other words, normally being bad is a bad thing. Right. Like normally we don't we're attracted to things because we're bad. We don't seek them out because we're bad. We don't love them because they're bad. We might tolerate their badness, but it's not the sort of point. Um, but movies um, in particular, this is true, I think, in other art forms as well. There's parallel uh, practices. But in movies, it's enormous. Right. There's. Um, it's an enormous culture of people who seek out bad movies for this, for their um, thinking of them as bad um, and embrace them as such. And so what I try to do in the book is, first of all, analyze what that even means. Right? What does it mean to say that you love a movie because it's bad um, or the movie's so bad it's good? Right? And just to, to sort of... Um, the gloss the theory, um, it's somewhat complicated, but the basic idea, my analysis is that when we say a movie's so bad, it's good, we're using the terms good and bad in different ways, 
right? Like we're not saying it's bad in a certain way and therefore in that exact same way, it's good. That doesn't make any sense, right? That's what that's the paradox. Um, and so it, there must be something different we mean when we say it's bad and what we mean when we say it's good, right? And what I argue for in the book is that badness means rule breaking, right? Now, um, what is what rules? Like there are no rules, you might immediately respond, right? Well, so what I basically think is that over time, you have this practice of um, making films in a, in a certain context. In, in America, you know, there's been this longstanding tradition of the Hollywood studio system. It's changed over time, but it's, it's you know, that's been the sort of main center of production of movies in America since the beginning of the art form, uh, or for, at least since the, the, the 20s. Um, and um, um, over time, a number of, um, sorry, I just saw my face get really big on the screen. <laughs> uh, over time, a number of conventions have developed. And like, for example, one of those conventions is that stories should make sense, right? So like um, when you have a story where there's some event in that story that isn't well explained, audience will rightfully complain and say, that, that, that's bad, you shouldn't do it like that. The story should make sense, right? Um, and there are lots of norms like that. For example, the boom mic should never appear in the frame. Um, if, if, if there's a mystery, we should find out the solution to it and that solution should be coherent. Um, if, if an actor and actress is doing an accent, that accent should be realistic. Like if you're, if you're supposed to do a Russian accent, it shouldn't sound like a French accent, right? So all these norms develop over time and um, bad movies are the ones that break them essentially. Now you might immediately respond, well, wait a minute, don't like avant-garde movies also break these norms? And the answer is absolutely yes, right? So like, um, you know, uh, for example, one example I use in the book is this movie Days by Simon Lang, which was a, a recent release, a movie that I, I love very much. Um, but the thing about it is it's not it's not easy movie to get into because um, there's only one significant event in the movie and the movie's two hours long. So in other, so it's like you watch the movie for two hours, right in the middle something happens and then for the last hour nothing happens for the rest of the time, right, really. So um, that breaks all sorts of norms, right, because there's a norm that, that um, there should be lots of events in the movie. Our interest should be sort of catapulted forward by event after event, right? Um, and so this is an avant-garde film that, that the nature of its avant-gardism is that it's sort of challenging this convention and presenting a movie where, where, where only one thing happens, right? Um, so the thing is about Days is that when in that movie, that's considered artistically serious. Like he did that for an artistically serious purpose. The, the filmmaker, Simon Lang, is an internationally respected artist who people think very highly of. And when he does something like this, puts out an experimental film that has this kind of, kind of avant-garde structure, people give him the benefit of the doubt. And they, and they think, okay, well, why did he choose to make it this way, right? And I think the difference is that a bad movie is one that breaks the rules but in a way that's not seen as being artistically serious or not seeing as having some high artistic purpose, right? Um, and so when, it, when we say that a movie is so bad, it's good, what we mean is it, it breaks the rules. It's somehow not the way it's supposed to be. It somehow um, you know, violates norms or is outside of convention. And the way in which it does that is not artistically serious. There's no good artistic reason for that, right? Um, so when we say a movie so bad, it's good. We're saying it's bad in that way. And for that reason, we're interested in it, right? For that reason, it's funny or, or, um, profound or, um, engaging somehow. Like it has some, it, it somehow or other captures our interest in virtue of violating norms in a way that doesn't, that isn't received as artistically serious. So I, in the book I develop I, many examples of what that looks like and what that means. So uh, I won't, um, get into that now. Um, but what I do want to talk about to start to sort of build a bridge to what I want to talk about with Nick. Okay, so um, there's this wonderful uh, interview with M. Night Shyamalan when his recent movie Old came out. Um, and this interview came out like right after the I, I, I submitted my final, final, final version of the manuscript. I'm like, oh, I would have loved to quote this in my book because it's so perfect. But I've been just quoting it at every talk instead. Um, so what Shyamalan says in this interview is that when he... Um, debuts a new movie, the way he feels is the same way he felt when um, he was a, a kid going to school for the first day of class. And like, he, he um, dressed expressively. Like he, he was like, I wore my mother's scarf, you know, and like a hat for my grandfather. And like this sort of hodgepodge outfit that he threw together out of different articles that he liked um, and that were expressive to, for him, expressive of his own style. Um, and the thing was that when he got to school, 
everybody else is wearing identical Abercrombie or whatever, identical like sweatshirt and, and jeans. And he's the one that's dressed all weird and funky. And he like immediately saw himself through everyone's eyes um, and realized he, the way he says it, his quote in the interview is, I realized I'm gonna get my ass handed to me today, right? Like they're gonna, these kids are gonna eat me alive today. And he says that now as an adult, that's how he feels when he debuts a movie, right? That like, when you look at the movies that are playing, I don't know if anybody saw old, I thought old was terrific. Um, but when you look at the movies that are playing at the multiplex, they're all kind of the same. And then there's this Shyamalan movie that is dressed in its grandfather's hat with this weird funky scarf, right? And it's pretty easy to tear down a Shyamalan movie if you want to. I'm sure, you know, you could read any number of reviews that people wrote where they just find all kinds of things to complain about. But in my view, that's like making fun of that kid. You know, it's like when you're going to it's like I, I get it. Maybe you don't like the movie. That's fine. But if, if you're going to take like a posture of ridicule and contempt and mock the movie for the ways that it's weird and different, it's like you're bullying that kid. You know, and of course, we often think, well, it's a movie, not a person, but it's a movie that a person made. And so it's, it's really not so different in my view. Mocking someone's outfit and mocking their movie are basically the same thing. Um, and um, the, the way I think about it is that like a lot of bad movie culture, I think, goes down that road. Right. And this is a major theme of the book. And I argue that um, it's in some sense better. Right. Um, and I don't really I'm not super committal about what that sense is. I just think I it's like I asked I asked you as the reader, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person making fun of that kid or do you want to be the person who's like that kid is awesome? That kid is super cool. I like that kid's style. I want to be his friend. And that's how I feel about bad movies. I think they're great. I think they're cool. I think they're like expressive of ex ex human eccentricity in a way that I admire. And like, I don't want to ridicule them, make fun of them. I want to be their friend, as it were. Um, and that's why I wrote the book, right? Now, bringing Nick's thinking into this. So um, Nick has some awesome work. Like I, I, I cite in the book, uh, Nick's book, On Being Awesome, which um, the, 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 the idea that I pull from that is um, this analysis of awesomeness, this sort of social virtue, um, as something that opens up social openings that allow the expression and mutual appreciation of individuality. Right. So, for example, like, I don't know if someone's wearing a funky outfit and I'm like, I like your style. And then we like have a have a moment where we I were like, I'm telling this kid that I appreciate his look and he's receiving that from me. What's happened is there's been this kind of mutual appreciation. Um, and um, I think that that bad movies are like that in the sense that, you know, there's lots and lots of movies that are sort of super safe to like and boring, in a way boring. I don't mean to, I don't mean that totally negative. I just mean that like, there's nothing that interesting about liking Citizen Kane at this point, let's say. Like, it's it's a great movie. It's like possibly the best one. And therefore it's, it's not like, if somebody tells me like Citizen Kane, that's not at all surprising to me. But like, if there's some like weird thing that everybody hates and I like it, and then you like it, and that, that we can appreciate each other in this way, right? It's like, like, let's say, I don't know, um, I like I, the movie I liked this last year that was terrible that I really liked was Chaos Walking. If anybody saw that um, and nobody liked it. I just read review after review after review. People I respect, they all hate it. I loved it. And so if I meet someone and they want to talk to me about how much they love Chaos Walking, I think that opens up a possibility for a mutual appreciation of individuality in a way that like recognizing that we both like, you know, Oscar winner from last year does not. Right. Because it's like these bad movies, like liking bad movies and like breaking outside of norms and liking things in ways that you're not supposed to is, is more expressive, I think, of individuality than this kind of hopping on the train of liking the stuff that everybody likes. It's sort of easy to like. Um, and um, the, extending this, though, Nick has um, I mean, Nick has developed a, a pretty extensive systematic theory of aesthetic life. And one part of that theory is about the way in which the value of art derives from the it's I don't know if, I, if I'm summarizing this accurately Nick can correct me but it, the, the sort of its ability to promote and sustain community right so Nick gives this example of um, the food culture surrounding the flying ants in Mexico um, where there's this whole practice that develops of harvesting the ants and then preparing them and eating them and it, it's not their, their, their aesthetic value is not just in their tastes and texture and so on, not just in their sort of sensory qualities as food, but also in the set of practices that they support and sustain, right? And, and bad movies are um, a really great example for, for this way of thinking about aesthetic value because um, you, bad movies are 
very obviously extremely pro-social. Like when you look at even the Roxy Theater in Missoula, they have bad movie nights and it brings people together um, and they people interact in, in a way that, that forms community. And indeed, like I participate in a number of like online communities where I've made friends and there's people that I, that I, that I talk to you all the time where like what we have in common is that we like bad movies, but, but um, in a sense, these movies are bad. So they're, they're, you might think they're disvaluable according to some conventional norms, but like that is, in a way friendly to their ability to support and sustain community. So I think like Nick's way of thinking about aesthetic value is very helpful. And the other thing that I wanna um, bring up before I, I was trying to talk for about 20 minutes and I'm getting close to that target before I let Nick respond so we can have a broader conversation um, is you know uh, just an anecdote about um, my friendship with Nick, right? So Nick and I are both, we're colleagues, but we're also friends. So we talk about art that we like and movies that we like and so on. And um, a funny thing that's sort of come up over the over the years is that you know I'm a big fan of the Fast and Furious series. Um, Angela and I, Angela's on Zoom as well. We watch. We're actually watching them through right now. We watch the whole series at least once a year. I would say, you know, last year I had a really rough year and I watched it probably three times um, because it makes me feel better. Um, but um, Tokyo Drift is. Like uh, if you haven't seen the Fast and the Furious movies, the way it goes, it's like there's the original, and the second one is the kind of hip hop entry. And then the third one, we go to Japan and then the rest of them all come back to America and it sort of changes style. Um, and there's one in Brazil actually too. But the one in Japan, Tokyo Drift, um, the thing about it is it doesn't have any of the characters from the other movies with the exception of like a couple, one cameo and then one character who will appear in the, the subsequent few movies. So it's like all these new characters that we don't care about yet. And like the main character is this super dopey guy from Alabama or whatever, who is like in Tokyo because his dad's an army guy. Um, and he, and the thing about this is that like, this character is like not all that likable and not all that interesting really. And like, also he's just doesn't really fit in the world of this movie at all. Right. And, and so Nick and I, over time, like, he's been like, why do you like that? And I, and he's been like, that guy just is terrible. And I'm like, exactly. Right. Um, and I've, I've always, that's, I've, we've always had trouble understanding each other on this because exactly the things that he's pointing out about it, that he doesn't like about it, that he thinks is sort of block him from understanding why I might like it. I'm like, well, that's, the, but that is, that is in large part what I like about it. So Nick has read my book and um, he, he and I have talked about it some. And one thing that I know from talking to him is that he's been watching bad movies, having read the book and it sort of got him excited to watch bad movies. And um, so I said, Nick, we're going to do this talk on Zoom. Why don't you watch Tokyo Drift? And why don't you see if you have a better understanding now of why I like that movie? Um, so what I want to do now, before I hand this over to Nick, is I just want to play you one clip from Tokyo Drift, um, and um, it's going to be about uh, a minute and 15 seconds long, and then I'll let him, so just to set the stage, in every Fast and Furious movie, there are like street racing events, um, and these street racing events, there's like music playing and people partying, and then we have a race. Every time the street racing events happen, Angela, my wife, who's on Zoom with us, she'll say, car party, and get really excited. Um, and, the, and the funny thing is that this is a car party, but transposed to the Japanese setting. So it's like totally different from the car parties that you'll find in um, the other entries. Okay, so I played that for you so you can get an idea of why Nick would, be, be, would find it curious that I enjoy that guy's performance. And with that, I'll pass the mic. Okay, okay, I do have a take. Um... But I guess I'll just start by saying that um, I love Matt's book. I really, I'm telling everyone to go buy it and go read it because it's just really, really great. It's written beautifully. It's full of Matt's personality. And I, I literally, I was smiling just on every page. Just such a great, such a great book. And also it really, um, I have to say, it really affected my aesthetic life in a, in a surprising way. Like I've, I've talked to Matt a lot about movies, about bad movies. I know Matt's, I don't entirely know Matt's taste, but I, I know I have a good, really good sense of Matt's taste and I've been influenced by it over the years. But uh, reading this book just like uh, blew my mind and, and sort of like opened up a new world of, of film for me in a way that our conversations hadn't quite done to that extent. Um, it also helped, I think that I uh, slipped the disc in, in my upper back. So I've just been on the couch for like five, five weeks, roughly, um, watching tons of movies and, and having a great time reading Matt's book a couple of times. Um, and so uh, I'll say a couple of things about the book. So I'm focusing on Matt's comments about um, aesthetic life and, and sort of my theory of aesthetic value. 
I think it's really, really neat to see how Matt's account of uh, what he calls bad movie love fits with uh, what I call the communitarian theory of aesthetic value. Um, to give you a little bit of background, a lot of ways, uh, a lot of a sort of a really popular way of thinking about aesthetic value is to think of it in terms of pleasure. So um, this goes back to Immanuel Kant, maybe even to David Hume, maybe even you know before that. But um, Kant had a huge influence on this way of thinking, and a lot of people still accept this idea that what makes something aesthetically good is its capacity to give you pleasure when you engage with it. Um, and if you think about things that way, you can see right away that bad movie love looks very strange. The idea being that bad movies are bad, so they should be displeasurable, yet you love them for what exactly? How bad they are? How displeasurable they are? Um, so there's a kind of puzzle that arises for what we call the hedonist who thinks that aesthetic value is just a capacity to cause pleasure. Um, similar problems crop up in other parts of aesthetics like you know, how do you get pleasure out of watching a horror film, right? It just scares you, so that's not pleasure. Uh, how could it have aesthetic value? So people have sort of twisted and turned to try to uh, get over these problems while retaining this kind of hedonist thinking about aesthetic value. And I think what Matt's book really nicely demonstrates is that maybe other theories of aesthetic value are, are more capable of handling uh, not just um, the standard cases, but also these apparently or supposedly hard cases um, in aesthetics. So take bad movie love. So the one of the uh, Matt offers a, an account of, uh, of of aesthetic value in the book, a kind of sketch of a, of an account, and says that he calls it the engagement uh, theory, according to which. Um, uh, something is, is, is aesthetically good as long as um, engaging with it has, has a certain kind of value. So it's a, what we call in philosophy, it's kind of buck-passing buck account because you explain what's good about the movies by uh, referring to uh, other goods, like the goods of engagement. Well, what goods are those? Um, I think in the book, Matt says a few things, but you have to read between the lines a little bit. And we find that, you know, Matt, Matt says a lot of really fascinating things about what makes engagement uh, good. And uh, he repeatedly actually refers to, I think, two things. On the one hand, there's the goods of, um, I would call it the goods of individuality. So he talks about idiosyncrasy of interpretation, creativity of interpretation. Um, I, have a, I have a couple of really nice Matt quotes here. Let me see if I can find them. Matt says, I find joy and fulfillment in the exploratory process of finding idiosyncratic ways of thinking about movies. If I spent as much as, of my life engaging with the art form as I have and came out of it without a distinctive point of view, that wouldn't be very, a very good sign as to the quality of my project. It took a lot of work to have such terrible opinions. Um, later on in the book, bad movie love promotes an open, flexible, and creative aesthetic sensibility and the formation of bonds across ordinary social boundaries. So I think, and I have, there's a, I've, I've sort of highlighted a bunch of quotes along those lines where Matt seems to think that the value of engagement um, is passed again, so the buck, buck is passed again to the value of individuality and community. And if that's, if that's what Matt thinks, then um, that's really amenable to, to this view that I've been developing, according to which um, aesthetic value is roughly whatever is such that engaging with it um, creates aesthetic community or um, promotes aesthetic community. So on this view, uh, I have to say what aesthetic community is. It's not just any old community, it's a certain distinctive kind of community where by engaging with this thing, we're able to cultivate our individualities in ways that are good for uh, the kind of mutual engagement that we get into when we uh, when we live our aesthetic lives. So, for example, the kinds of things that Matt was talking about. You know, uh, I have an interpretation of uh, Tokyo Drift. 
Matt has an interpretation of Tokyo Drift, and we share our interpretations, and we we sort of vibe on you know this movie and finding value in it, and 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 valuing it in our own distinctive ways. You know, he might influence me a little bit. I might influence him a little bit, um, or we might be at, at at loggerheads, and we don't really uh, see eye to eye. In which case, um, you know, this movie hasn't really quite functioned as it were properly for us in our aesthetic lives. But but in any case, um, uh, on on the communitarian view that I've been, that I've been developing, uh, bad movies are are a really fascinating case where something that might seem to lack aesthetic value really has a whole lot of aesthetic value uh, as long as we're paying attention to the individuality of the of the work of the movie, which Matt is really good at bringing out. Uh, one of the really beautiful parts of the book, sort of throughout the book, Matt is such a sensitive appreciator of film, and he finds things to love about films that are surprising and totally convincing, films that you might have totally dismissed out of hand. I watched, uh, uh, one of the first movies I watched was was The Core, um, upon reading Matt's book. It's, a, it's the opening example. Um, and when you read Matt's description, you just can't believe that this film exists. Like it seems unbelievable that this is a real, a real thing in the world. And then you watch it, and it's, it's, it's horrible in so many ways. But it's a really uh, enjoyable film to watch as long as you're sufficiently primed. I think by Matt's uh, innovative and I think really groundbreaking thinking about uh, what it is to be a valuer of of an artistic tradition that is so rich and varied and also one that has been so overwhelmed by a certain kind, a certain brand of internet culture that can be all too dismissive and all too uh, rigid in its, in its interpretive thinking. So I think that's what I really found liberating about Matt's book is it just, I've, I've felt this kind of rut in watching films where, you know, oh, you check the Rotten Tomatoes meter and it's like oh, this, that, and the other thing, you watch the film, it's, it's a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's like such a boring film. <laughs> Yet another one of these kind of formulaic um, uh, Hollywood films, and you're just like uh, hard to find a hard to find a foothold in this uh, in this sort of media juggernaut that is that is Netflix and HBO and um, and the and the current film industry. And this film, I think, helped me sort of reclaim my my independence uh, in in film watching, or at least start to. I can't say I. I fully reclaimed it, but it's given me the inspiration to try a little harder um, at that, which, uh, which, for which I'm super appreciative. And um, and even if it doesn't have that effect on you, I think uh, you should go go check out this book and and have a great time uh, reading it. So I can say a lot more about um, the communitarian way of thinking about aesthetic value, and I'm sure Matt and I will talk about it more. Um, but for uh, the next couple of minutes, I think I'll just say a little bit about. Um, about Tokyo Drift, which I've watched twice, I think, in the last few weeks, uh, <laughs> and I have to say, Matt, I have found I have found an in. I think um, I don't I don't think we agree still, but I think we can vibe. Um, so my my in is this. Well, let me let me tell you what I don't like about the film, or uh, what I haven't liked about the film, rather. Okay, so if you watch Tokyo Drift. Uh, if, if you watch if if you watch Fast and Furious one and two, um, you get a sense of what's going on with this with this franchise. You don't really because you have to watch like I think up to six at least to really understand the the, the important themes in the in the in the franchise. But um, but you, but you get this third installment, Tokyo Drift, and um, you're just you're out of you're out of the world. You don't have Paul Walker. Uh, none of the characters are in yet, and you're handed this film that on a first read, at least my first read was, you know, there's just this total goofball, Lucas Black, who has a weird accent, can barely act. I mean, it's just, he's wooden. He's, I guess he's supposed to be handsome. He's supposed to be some kind of Paul Walker replacement, but um, he's just, he's just so goofy. I can't get, I can't get behind him. And, and he's introduced in, 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 on this superficial reading of the film, I think, as a main character. And so you're supposed to kind of root for this goofball. And, um, and then, so what's the plot? Well, 
he's an outsider, folks. And if you didn't know that, the film will tell you about 10 million times that he's an outsider and he and he needs to, you know, uh, maybe not be an outsider so much or find his way if you're, but, but you know, he's sort of forced in, into these rules in Japanese culture and his father's uh, in, the, in the Navy and he's very uh, rule governed and everyone wants him to follow the rules, but, um, but he's an outsider uh, and he's gonna do it his own way. And so there's kind of this like, kind of like limp sort of theme. And then, you know, if you thought the first couple of movies were, were fun, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the fun is sort of stripped away of the dynamic plots and the, the sort of rich community of engagement. You have just a few characters and, you know, every chance that they get to show a boob or a butt, like, you know, it's, it's there. Um, and even the, even the car scenes, which I, I actually really love, you know, there's there's sort of an argument if you're just primed by 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 the first and second films that they're not as good. I mean, it's it's all about drifting in in uh, basically in parking garages and on a mountain, and or and and by a dock to, to for some practice. Um, oh, and, and through the streets of Tokyo, those are more more, more cool more cool scenes maybe. Um, but it's like they drift, okay? It's drifting. The cars drift every second. There's a drift. It's so much drifting. You know, there's no like jumping into a semi truck. There's no like launching onto a yacht. There's no uh, flying from one building into another part of a skyscraper to like enter an art party. Like all the cool stuff. Um, I guess that happens in later films, but um, you know, a lot of that cool stuff is gone. There's no. Uh, um, some people I've heard say it's not a heist movie, but I think there is kind of a heist heist element to it um, to Tokyo Drift, but. Um, but anyway, on a superficial reading, I just, it seems to me like cheap, not very dynamic plot. Um, all the stuff from one and two are kind of gone. You're like, where is that? Um, and, you know, maybe there's some good car, maybe there's some good car races. And, uh, and that's, about, that's about it. The, the guy gets the girl, um, you know, yay. But, okay, here's my new, here's my new take. I think, um, Maybe it's not, I mean, it's, it's just my new take on the film given, given Matt's book, because one of the things Matt's, one of the things Matt's book helped me, um, I think achieve really in my aesthetic life is, is, uh, I don't know, looking closer, like, you know, Matt, Matt really helps you realize that like, yeah, there, there are these, there are these sort of like very forceful norms in, 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 in mainstream filmmaking that I think we're all acclimated to but that um, we're maybe a little too comfortable with and, and uh, not so, and not, not willing enough to, um, to question and to say, sort of look beyond, okay, maybe, maybe the film doesn't make sense. Maybe the boat came out of nowhere, but it um, doesn't mean you have to dismiss the entire film because one thing didn't make sense. There, there, maybe there's other things in there to love if you, if you, uh, if you look for them. And I think that, uh, I think that the way that I, I actually have, a newfound appreciation for Tokyo Drift. And it comes down to thinking that Han is the main character, not Sean. So if you watch through the series, uh, up through nine, I guess, um, you know, Han is this really important figure um, in four, five, six. Um, and uh, and he, he dies in, or he apparently dies in, in, uh, in, the, in Tokyo Drift. And what you get, I think, in the later films is a much clearer appreciation of the biggest theme of the film, which is chosen family. Um, and instead of seeing Sean as an outsider, I started to see him as uh, someone who needs to learn to make his own family. And then you see Han come in who knows this. So Han, at this stage in the film, so it doesn't follow the chronology of the of the franchise, right? Number, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, three is actually uh, seven. Right, so three happens after six. So what actually happened was that yeah. the character of Han was so popular that they backed the timeline up so they can put him in the next three movies. So the next three yeah. movies actually happened before Tokyo Drift, which was again, yeah. because the character of Han was so successful. And in my opinion, it's in the next three movies that this franchise really comes into its own and sort of finds itself. And the, one of the recurring themes of the series is that, you know, chosen family and loyalty to chosen family is like the most important thing. 
and it's it's constantly challenged it's constantly reaffirmed um and so uh when you see tokyo drift in this light what you're seeing is han is in tokyo after spoiler alert his partner dies and he's he's at the stage in tokyo drift where this is actually a little confusing but after thinking about it i i sort of understand i think now he's stealing money from the yakuza right and you're like why is han stealing money he just got like at least 10 million dollars from a heist in brazil and like probably sitting on way more money but if you think about it you I mean it's at least a couple years after uh after giselle dies he's and he's living in tokyo which is a super expensive city he's probably not been doing great he's probably burning through money um he's in a pretty low place he's basically like right-hand man to this like teenage wannabe yakuza kid whose uncle is like way way high up and you're like what happened to han like he's rock bottom basically um he's at this point where he's stealing but he sees this kid lucas he sees lucas black sean and and i think he i think he sees his past life in this kid and brings him into the sort of valuing world of the franchise which is really wonderful and beautiful and and strong and full of family and friendship and loyalty and um it 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 got me to see his death in that film as way more tragic like way more emotional and also to see Sean's triumph at the end as Han's triumph not just like the the uh, the you know the Gaijan finally is accepted by the you know whatever um by the by the sort of community uh is you see sort of Han's victory there and um and seeing it in that light I actually really like the film now I have to say I do um I think it's flawed because I cannot stand Lucas Black there's no getting around that if you want to try to convince me more on that like I'm game but uh I just think he's too goofy I I can't I can't even uh I can't even with that guy um I I sort of smile at some of his goofball smirks and stuff but um but I I I don't know I find a deeper emotional resonance with uh with seeing it as Han with the as Han with Han as the main character and uh with with his um you know upbringing of Sean into this fast and furious kind of community um so that he can live his own life as a, as as the outsider that they so emphasize that he is Awesome. Well, I'm I'm going to respond to some of that and say a few things about Tokyo Drift myself before we open up to everyone. Um so first I'll start with Tokyo Drift and then I might work back to some of the earlier stuff you said. Which thank you for all the kind words about the book. I really appreciate it. Um so um let me uh, actually so so let me introduce another line of thinking about the film and we can kind of tie everything together. So um in chapter 3 of the book I try to extend my account So the account that I gave before which is um a movie is so bad it's good. I actually want to answer one of these questions in chat right now. I know that uh, Julie Gillian is going to moderate. But uh the idea that the, the person asked in chat that the difference between a movie that is bad because the filmmaking is sloppy um um uh, I actually that's the kind of movie I'm talking about. So when you say that a movie is sloppy or badly written like those are norms that the movies are breaking. And what I don't think I don't think that every bad movie is good. Not not by any means, right? Like lots of there's lots of ways of being bad and almost all of them are totally uninteresting. There are There are so many movies. There are I watched so many movies and I cannot make a dent in how many movies there are. And and a lot of them are really bad and not in a way that's interesting. The point is that some movies are sloppy, made badly written in a way that's interesting. And those are the ones that that we love. Right? Now, in this in this case like but the thing is that um there's another category of movie that also gets lumped into the same umbrella. and that's the um low budget genre movie right um in the low budget genre movie it's like this it's like it's culturally associated so it's like if you go to on the facebook page it's like the bad movie love facebook group that i'm a part of the the name of the group is like so bad it's good cult midnight movies it includes all the stuff together under one umbrella because this is sort of one unified culture so it, there's a little bit of a puzzle but like how do i want to extend the account of so bad it's good to include these low budget genre movies where what's going on there is that the movies are just are actually like high achieving perhaps for their category it's just that the whole category is is widely dismissed and thought of as bad right so like the way i argue in the book is that um there are whole categories that as a category are are um transgressive of received norms right like the the direct to video action movie the 90s which is like truly where my heart is um th- th- that movie those movies um were sort of 
deliberately marketing themselves to like a, a sort of what was thought of as a lowbrow audience that was like critically disrespected. Right. And it's like, it's like, um, there's still stuff like this being made today. We don't hear about it. You don't see articles about it. It doesn't come up in your feed. I've watched every single one of those. I'll tell you that, right. Every single one of these directed video action movies that, that, uh, go under the radar. Right. And the point is that that like whole category is, um, is, is, is in a sense so bad it's good. Right. Because the whole category like totally abandons norms that movies are supposed to follow and makes movies that are just for this niche audience of like action movie fans or whatever. Right now. So, and I try to explain like, how do you get interested in something like that? Where it's like, I've seen, I've probably seen a hundred movies or more, maybe 200 that have the plot of Die Hard. So how do you stay interested in a hundred movies that have the plot of Die Hard? And the the, the 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 analogy that I introduce in the book is it's it's not unlike the way you're interested in a hundred different paintings of the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus, right? And like there are a lot. If you go to the Prado or the Louvre, you're going to see a whole lot of Virgin Mary with baby Jesus, a lot. Okay. Um, and the, and the, so the way that you find those interesting is that you engage with that whole system of that whole system. Of representation, right? Like you, you, you look at all these different paintings, and you look at the ways they're similar and different, and the different traditions that 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 shape those similarities and differences, and so on. And your engagement starts to take on a systematic character, right? And I think that like engagement with low budget genre film is like that, right? So now um, transposing that to the Fast and Furious case, right? So there are nine of these movies. And, and, and these movies, they all have certain things in common, but they're not all the same, right? And so one of the things that sort of interests me about the franchise and about other franchises as franchises is the way that sort of each of the movies manages to be similar, but also different. Like the way that they, you know, they manage to be sort of in the same thing, but also be distinct from movie to movie. Um, and like, I think that when you sort of take the franchise as your aesthetic object rather than the individual movies, it, it totally changes the way you see these things. Right. So like um, in the case of the Halloween series, the, the third Halloween movie um, was does not have Michael Myers in it. Right. The, and so everybody hated it for this reason. Season of the Witch. It's about these Halloween masks that, that have this. There's like this druid conspiracy and these Halloween masks that somehow involve Stonehenge. I want to ruin it for you. If you haven't seen it because it's amazing. Right. But like everybody hated that movie because it's like, where's Michael Myers? It's a Halloween movie. But when you now look at the series of Halloween movies, and there are now a lot of them, there are six original series movies, and there are the two Rob Zombie movies. Oh, and then there's the two, there's Resurrection and H2O, and then there's the two new ones, and so we'll have a third. So there's a ton of Halloween movies. And when you look at that series all together, I would argue that the existence of that third movie, which does not have Michael Myers, and is about the Halloween masks in Stonehenge, that that one makes the whole series much more interesting. Right. That, that 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 like makes the category more interesting. And I would argue that like Tokyo Drift is indeed the oddball entry in Fast and the Furious. And I would argue that it makes the series more interesting in virtue of all the ways that it departs from the other movies. But at the same time, it has enough. It, it sort of it is in a way connected. And the same thing with Halloween three, like Halloween three and the Druid lore there ends up connect coming back in Halloween six, which does have Michael Myers. But the Druid lore becomes relevant. And then in the more recent David Gordon Green movies, the, the Halloween masks uh, play a prominent role for, you know, so these things can all get interconnected. And of course, I don't want to ruin too much, but the Lucas Black character from, from Tokyo Drift does appear in a later movie. Like he does, you know, become a part of the series. And, and so that's interesting to me. But like what makes it such an oddball movie is that it's a martial arts movie. <laughs> Okay, so and this is you won't necessarily realize this until you've watched it multiple times, but also you need to know something about martial arts cinema. So there's no martial arts in the movie, but what there is is car racing as a stand in for martial arts. And the movie follows the plot of a martial arts story. So it's very standard. And this is true. Both this is in Hong Kong cinema. Hong Kong cinema is is really the the the, the most. Uh, productive martial arts uh, market that, you know, huge number of amazing martial arts movies, but this also has come out of Japan and a lot of the Japanese movies have emulated the Hong Kong ones. There's been a lot of kinds of mutual interchange and like uh, um, in Japan, um, one of the most prominent and famous stars of martial arts films is Sonny Chiba and Sonny Chiba is in this movie. Sonny Chiba is in Tokyo Drift. So I want to play you just right now, this scene with Sonny Chiba. Um, but like, it's, I think it's important to understand watching Tokyo Drift that like what happens is we get the plot of many martial arts movies, which is an outsider who needs who like wants to compete in a martial arts competition. And then he finds someone to train him in this new style that he didn't possess. And that's what enables him to be competitive. So in this movie, the relevant style is drifting. 
right? Like drifting is this, is this technique that's like sort of local to Japan is how it's presented, right? And so he needs to find an expert at drifting who turns out to be Han, who is like his sensei who trains him. And then of course Han is killed, right? Or we think he's killed. And so the classic martial arts ending is that you have to avenge your sensei, right? And that's how this movie ends is with um, Lucas Black avenging Han, avenging his sensei. But so Sonny Chiba, his presence in the movie signals to us to think of it in this way, right? Because again, he is like the Japanese, you know, like, you know, like one of the best known and most recognizable martial arts movie stars, right? And he, he plays um, a, the head Yakuza. So I just want to play the scene where uh, we meet him. Um, I want you to see that um, because again, I, the sense that, so um, when I'm watching Tokyo Drift, I'm not just taking it on its own in a vacuum as a standalone movie, but I'm thinking about its relationships both to the series and to genre, right? And the way that it, um, like Fast and the Furious series as a, as a whole has all kinds of connections to existing genres, in particular to the car, the sort of muscle car movies of the 70s um, and also to heist movies, right? And so um, now we have a third genre, the martial arts movie, and we have them all kind of mixed together. And so um, what's interesting about Tokyo Drift is in part relating it to these categories and the ways that it sort of revises and mashes them up. Now, the, as far as the, this sort of goofball performance at the center of the movie, that's actually super standard for the martial arts genre, right? Like, you know, Hong Kong movies, like, it's totally standard to have this bumbling sort of incompetent guy who becomes a badass through his training in the movie. And, like, you'll notice that at the end of the movie, like, there where he's talking to... Um, he's talking to Sonny Chiba, he's talking, he's just not a goofball, right? He's like, he knows how to talk to this Yakuza boss in this like respectful way um, when he could just get killed for walking in there, you know? So um, it's like his training of Han has actually has changed his character. Like he's become this kind of badass and he's become someone who can like walk in and talk. Where at the beginning of the movie, you, like you saw, I played you that clip and you saw what he's like. And so, um, I, I, you know, again, the idea is you have this element of the movie that's sort of bad on the surface, which is this goofball performance that just doesn't fit. But um, I, that's exactly one of the things I like about the movie, not just because it's one part of that is that I enjoy the silliness of it. I love I didn't play it, but there's this wonderful early scene where he like gets into um, he gets into a race with this sort of football player guy, jock guy at school. And that's what gets him kicked out into the Japan. And, like his acting in that scene, like really is very amusing to me, even though he is a total goofball. But like, but it's also that um, that like I think that when a critic or when you know an, a casual onlooker sees the movie and they just think this performance sucks, this movie sucks, they stopped too soon, right? As Nick said, like they, they didn't look hard enough because they didn't think about the ways in which it's a martial arts movie. They didn't think about the way in which this performance makes so much more sense when you think of it in that way, and so on, right? And so I think like that that what one of the things that bad movie love does. Um, is that it enriches and benefits the whole of film culture because, of course, these excavations that bad movie lovers perform, those then eventually often are taken up and become like more of a mainstream narrative. So like all kinds of movies that at one point were just thought of as just crap and bad and nobody cares about them have been rehabilitated over time and now have a much stronger reputation. And the way I see that is that like bad movie lover, bad movie culture is the kind of petri dish where these sort of early beginnings of a rehabilitation can fester, where, you know, where, you, where like new ideas can, like it, bad movie culture is a place where there's no, it's like, like it's totally safe to have complete oddball reasons for loving a movie that everybody else hates and people will celebrate that. You know, you're not afraid of people judging you and thinking that, that, you're, that you have bad taste because you like this bad movie, it's rather the opposite. And I think that's sort of a Petri dish where like new ways of thinking about these things can emerge and then can influence the larger culture. Now, um, and, and so like coming back to Nick's ideas about communitarian aesthetic value, I think bad, bad movies in, in, like understood it in these communitarian lights, there's a sense in which you can see why they, they're more powerful than um, movies that exist within the boundaries of convention, right? Because um, precisely because they, they they're like a project to be worked on. And they, and they like, they like, we sort of, it's almost like working on a philosophical problem where it's like, okay, I have a new idea about Tokyo Drifts and then someone else can add to it. And then, and it's like, you don't have to do that with Nomadland, right? I keep using the example of Nomadland in various talks and interviews, but like, I knew exactly what I was supposed to think about Nomadland the first time I watched it. I knew exactly what it's supposed to be about and exactly how it's supposed to feel. And it didn't require all that much work, right? Whereas, 
Um, I've watched Tokyo Drift like 10 times and I'm just beginning to understand its riches. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, oh, with that note, I want to pass it back to uh, if Nick wants to have a, um, a quick uh, response or else if we want to open up to questions. Yeah, just briefly. I mean, um, I love that martial arts reading. I, I, uh, maybe I'll watch it a third time <laughs> just to sort of like play around with that a little bit. Cause that's pretty cool. And, and on the surface, really convincing. Um, yeah. I like, I like that reading a lot. I'm not sure I'm buying the, the redemption of Lucas Black as the martial arts goofball, but, um, but you know, again, I'll, I'll look at it again, but, um, but yeah, I also, I just wanted to say another thing about your book is as a kind of cultural intervention at this time, like, you know, you see, I see this all the time on the internet, you know, it's like people can't, you know, touch a Jonathan Franzen novel without apologizing, you know, or, uh, or read Sally Rooney without, you know, acknowledge, no, it's Sally Rooney. Like there's all these kind of like, uh, these sort of like gestures to some vague oppressive other crowd that, you know, has great taste and is super mainstream. And, you know, and it's like, everyone has to sort of vaguely defer to like, uh, you know, to know, knowingly defer to this, to this other. And, uh, and I think it's, I think it's got a huge effect on, on aesthetic life in our, at least in the United States. I mean, uh, um, in kind of social media world, um, uh, as it influences the real world, um, there's a kind of, you know, even, even really, I see on, uh, say on Instagram stories, really well-known authors being like, well, I know uh, whatever you know the new friends and say, I just I know I shouldn't read this, or I know that people are disagree, or there's always this kind of gesture of like, I'm afraid to step out on this limb, but uh, I kind of like this book, um, or I kind of like this film, and I feel like that that's a little overblown right now, and I think that your book does a lot to kind of reaffirm, in a sense, aesthetic autonomy, the idea that you know. We, uh, you know, despite the importance of, of, of community and aesthetic life, and, and in fact, because of the importance of community and aesthetic life, you know, we have to make sure that uh, our opinions are kind of uh, based on our own viewings, our own serious attempts at understanding what a filmmaker is doing, what an actor is trying to do, um, what a novelist is up to, and, and so on and so forth. And, um, I think with Tomato Meter and, and Metacritic and all these things, like it's, we've kind of lost lost a, a little bit of our grip on on that. And your book is uh, so I, I don't I can't imagine a book that's more affirming of like the individual's sort of you know struggle with with work with with a, with a work. Uh, uh, and, it, and the book that demonstrates that in practice too, not just in theory. Thanks for listening, y'all. I hope you enjoyed this. And keep an eye out for some other tidbits that I'll release uh, now and then. Even though Reductio is sort of on hiatus at the moment, I still want to release some goodies for you now and then. So, cheers!